Lesson One: Basic Hip. Welcome to the Jazz Session, the weekly jazz interview show. I'm Jason Crane. The Jazz Session is presented by AllAboutJazz.com, the web's leading source for jazz news, reviews, MP3 downloads, and more. The Jazz Session is also available for free at thejazzsession.com and in iTunes. This week's guest is pianist Myra Melford from an album that she did with pianist Satoko Fuji called Under the Water. This is Yadokari. My guest is pianist, composer, band leader, educator Myra Melford. It's、uh, my great pleasure to have her here on the jazz session. Myra, thanks so much for being here. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you. You are、uh, so busy and involved in so many different projects that I'm very interested in in kind of how it all began and how you you came into the the world of music、uh, in the beginning because you've taken such a journey since then. What what was the original introduction for you? Well. Hmm. I mean, I, I, you know, I started playing the piano when I was quite young, probably like three years old, and at that point, I had no idea what I was doing, but totally enjoyed it. Improvised and made up little pieces and stuff like that, and couldn't wait to start taking piano lessons, which I began in kindergarten. 
and was pretty quickly disappointed that the piano lessons weren't at all what I had imagined, but I did stick with them. And my first piano teacher um, was and still is a great boogie-woogie player and blues player in the Chicago tradition, Erwin Helfer. And so along with learning classical music, I started to play the blues as a child and quickly discovered by about early high school that being a classical pianist wasn't the way for me to go and took a few years off and got back to playing music again in college. And then it was through jazz piano lessons and um, studying a lot of world music. And that led me to discover the the AACM and uh, the Art Ensemble of Chicago, Henry Threadgill, Muhal Richard Abrams, people like that. And that kind of reignited my interest in in pursuing music seriously and kind of have been going for developing my own voice as both a player and a composer ever since. You've kind of anticipated my next question, which was about the AACM. Can you talk about your first contact with AACM folks and yes. uh, whether you were re- kind of prepared to hear what you were hearing, what the effect was on you? Yeah, definitely. And, you know, it's funny because as I was answering that, I thought, God, I've left out Leroy from that list. And Leroy Jenkins was actually the first person from the AACM that I heard and met, or met and heard. You know, Myra, we should probably tell people actually what the AACM is as we keep using the acronym. Absolutely. It's the Association for the Advancement of Creative Musicians, and it was an organization that started in the 60s in Chicago, and I, I think it's fair to say that it grew out of the black nationalist movement, but it also had very strong artistic and aesthetic concerns as well as political concerns and um it's really uh, if you if you get a chance to take a look at george lewis's book which came out last year a power stronger than itself um he places the aacm and the music that was coming from this uh varied group of musicians as being strongly within the american experimentalist tradition when I first heard a concert by Leroy Jenkins shortly after I began these jazz piano lessons in college, uh, it was like this light bulb went off, and I thought, this is what I want to do with my life. And I, I have to say at the same time that I had no idea what they were playing. It was a trio concert of Leroy Jenkins and Amina Claudine Myers on piano and Ferona Klaff on drums. And I, I really didn't understand the music. I mean, I barely understood bebop and, and more traditional uh, jazz languages at the time. But it, there was something about it that really the energy of it, the spirit of it, the sound of it was new and fresh. And I just thought, this is what I want to do. I want to figure out what what is my music, you know, and pursue that. And I, I've been doing that ever since. Did it seem like people playing with the kind of feeling that you had when you were a little kid playing the piano? Yeah, I think that would be a fair assessment. Although, albeit at a much higher level, there was something really playful, very creative, just and very idiosyncratic, you know, very much their own voices. Um, and I guess as, as a young adult, I was able to recognize that. So when you hear something like that trio show, and it kind of in one moment opens up this new world of possibilities to you, how do you take that next step? What was, what was the next thing you did? 
Gee, well, I went on to study standard jazz pedagogy. You know, I mean, I learned how to play standards. I learned how to play more traditional jazz. At the same time, I was starting to write my own music. And since my own music didn't sound like jazz standards, I was having to learn to improvise on that. That led me to a brief stay in Boston after I graduated from college uh, let's see. Well, let me back up a little bit. I was going to college at Evergreen State College in Olympia, Washington, which is kind of an alternative school along the lines of Bennington or Hampshire College. And I spent one year of that time at a college in Seattle called Cornish College of the Arts, where I studied with Gary Peacock and Art Landy and various other people. After that, I thought, well, I would really love to move to New York and and pursue studying with some of the AACM musicians I had met. Um, After Leroy, I met Braxton and Henry Threadgill and some of the others. But I also thought maybe going to New England Conservatory and studying with Rand Blake in the Third Stream Department would be a good idea. Uh, So I spent a few months in Boston and studied privately with Rand and That gave me the confidence to just go ahead and move to New York. And when I got to New York in 1984, I studied with Jackie Byard and Don Pullen. And then shortly after that, started studying composition with Henry Threadgill. When you say studied in that in that context, what is it that you were studying? And actually, even before you answer that question, let me ask you the one that I thought of before that, when you were talking about learning the, the kind of standard repertoire. Why did you feel that was necessary, given where you thought you might end up? I don't know that I really thought it was necessary, uh, but that's what people were teaching. And that's, it, it seemed like a good idea, but I can't tell you with... Uh, with I can't tell you that at the time I thought, well, I really need to learn the tradition. In retrospect, I'm glad that I did. But at the time, it was just what the people around me were teaching. And at the same time, I was seeking out people who could start to open me up to the new thing, which was why studying with Art Landy, who has a very creative bent to his playing, though not not nearly as maybe experimental or avant-garde 
as uh, some of the other people I was interested in. He was very creative and open in his approach. And, and studying with Gary Peacock was fantastic because he turned all of us on to his time of working with Albert Eiler and Paul Blay, and, and um, this was very interesting to me. But, but it was really just that, you know, as I said, that's what the people around me were teaching. And, it, and, and since it was all new to me, it was all great to be learning. And what was your experience uh, with Jackie Bayard and with uh, Don Pullen like? Well, I mean, Jackie continued to school me in the tradition, which was exactly what I needed. But I think he recognized something else in me and really encouraged that, which, I, which was enormously supportive for me at that point. Um, as a young musician in New York, it was exciting to get to feel like, you know, even though, you know, I wasn't, I, I was certainly turned on by the playing that he had done, say, with Mingus and, and in various other contexts where he really was stretching the music out. Uh, that's not what I was working on with him, but it is, uh, I think somehow he recognized that there was some potential for me to go in that direction. And when I was working with Don, it was, excuse me, it was to prepare for the Thelonious Monk piano competition for which I had made the semifinals. We were working on standard repertoire and, and monk tunes in particular, but again, he was really encouraging me to find my own way to play them. And when I would talk with him about, you know, the issue of, well, how do you take a, a tune that's so structured and, and has this very definite harmony and rhythmic structure to it and start to break that open. And he said something to me, which I think is one of the greatest things a teacher has ever said to me, which was, that's a great question, and I know you'll come up with a good solution. Uh, he wasn't about to tell me how to do it or to say, even this is exactly how I do it, if you want to imitate me. He really encouraged me to find my own way and and um, so both of those, uh, you know, lessons with both of those people were enormously valuable to me. And were you composing during all this time as well? I was. I was. And um, I was starting to work with a flute player in, in New York um, who I met through a workshop with Leroy Jenkins. And she and I were taking a completely different approach. We were, uh, that's when I started playing the inside of the piano and developing my vocabulary on the instrument that went way beyond playing the keyboard, starting to structure improvisations and do a lot of free improvisation, and also writing tunes and trying to figure out how to bring all these worlds together. And what was the uh, kind of the frame of reference that you were using uh, during this time? Were you just, was it just going out and listening to people doing the kinds of things you were interested in? Or how were you, decide, how were you developing the language that you were using at this time? A lot of it was just spending hours and hours at the piano and trying to get sound out of it any way I could and then spending hours and hours rehearsing with uh, the flutist uh, was Marion Brandis. And she and I would get together two or three times a week and, and play together and show each other what we were working on and encourage each other and improvise together and so on. At the same time, I was going out to hear as much music as I could in New York of all kinds. Um, but one of the things that made a huge impression on me was um, Butch Morris was conducting the David Murray Big Band on Monday nights at a club called, at, that was then called Sweet Basil. It's now Sweet Rhythm. 
and that was really exciting to me. Shortly after that, I started working with Butch, and he was really interested in this vocabulary that Marion and I both started working with him and really encouraged us to use this vocabulary we were developing. And so it was a combination of listening to people in New York, working with people in New York, and, of course, at the same time, I was still listening to lots of recordings of jazz music and um, I got really into Cecil Taylor and Andrew Hill and Muhal Richard Abrams and, you know, was kind of just immersing myself in every aspect of it that I could. And, Myra, were you also gigging at this time? Just starting to. Marion and I were doing a few gigs. I was doing a few gigs with Butch. Still, I was doing a little bit of work with Leroy uh, Jenkins, um, but not... Not I really started gigging in earnest in about 1989. So I had a you know a four or five year period of really developing when I was doing some gigs, but not really still considering myself a student at that time. And uh, around that time, what was the what was the scene like in terms of, of venues, places to play uh, when you wanted to stretch out and, and play more adventurous music? Uh, there were definitely some places. Let me think about this. I remember playing some library gigs, New York Public Library gigs. Um, and by about 88 or 89, the Knitting Factory had started up. And so when I really started playing, you know, pursuing the performance aspect, that was a great venue for me. There were a bunch of places on the Lower East Side where I worked with Butch. I remember we did one really great gig at the uh, Museum of Modern Art Sculpture Garden, but we did all kinds of stuff in smaller venues. Um, There was roulette. There was the kitchen. You know, places like that. And then after the Knitting Factory, there was Tonic. But, um, But the Knitting Factory played a big role in my development because... Uh, Marion and I played a duo gig there, I think in 88 or 89, and one of the pieces that we played, or I played as a solo on that concert, made it onto the one of those Knitting Factory compilation discs. I think it was volume two. And based on that, I got invited to put together a trio to take on a, a tour of Europe that the Knitting Factory was setting up. And this was a really big break for me. I put together a trio with Lindsay Horner and Reggie Nicholson, and went to Europe, and during that tour, I was offered a record deal from a label that was based in uh, Germany and, and, and New York, and, and got a European agent. So that was really a huge break for me that came through the Knitting Factory. Was Europe exactly the right place to go at that time in your Absolutely. development? Absolutely. Oh, my God. There was still a lot of work there, still a lot of money to be made, especially by musicians from America. And uh, the audiences were very receptive to the music, and that was a big... uh, I found that all very supportive and exciting and and really, really fun.
so when it was time to uh, to put together your first record uh, as a leader, uh, you must have had a, a, a pretty large palette to choose from. How did you decide what you were going to put on that record and who was going to be on it with you? I had just done this successful tour with this trio that I mentioned with Lindsay Horner and Reggie Nicholson, so that was the obvious thing for me to record first. And we had a pretty good repertoire put together based on you know the sets we'd been playing on this tour, so... That was the obvious thing to start with. And because that band was working so well, I, I, I kept that trio together, I guess, until about 1997. We made um, a couple more records together, and then I expanded it into a quintet with um, by adding Marty Ehrlich and Dave Douglas. And that core, though, with Lindsay and Reggie, sustained me for you know quite a few years. It's interesting because with all the different things uh, that you do with a piano and all of the ways that you you bend all of the kind of normal forms that uh, more traditional jazz comes with, um, you still worked in the the piano trio setting, which in a lot of ways I I would imagine could be uh, a little restrictive. How did you how did you guys navigate around each other and and come up with a way to to perform and be adventurous uh, in that setting? Well, I think I mean part you know the. If you look back in history, I mean, Bill Evans really blew the piano trio open, I think, and and Keith Jarrett kind of took took up on that. Um, so our approach was very egalitarian, despite the fact that it was my band and I was the pianist. I gave a lot of room to both um, Lindsay and Reggie to be equal voices melodically and harmonically as well as rhythmically. And we, I don't know, we just had a real empathy about how to take a tune and expand on it and did everything from very harmonic and lyrical, melodic kind of material to very uh, textural and, and more dissonant and highly energetic material. And somehow it just really worked. All of that material worked with that band. So, I mean, some of it wasn't wasn't anything that I I. I tried to do as much as was just lucky that it worked. Jumping uh, several years forward in, in time from the from the late '90s, can you talk about your discovery of the harmonium and and what followed from that, and probably what a harmonium is for folks who don't know? Yeah, the harmonium is a small hand pump organ, and um, it's used primarily in South Asian music. Although, you know, it, it made its way to India from Europe when the Christian missionaries started going to India in the 1700s 1800s, and the Indians decided to use it for their own music. And, at the, you know, at the time it was more like a prairie organ when the Christian missionaries were traveling with these little organs. They were actually foldable, collapsible organs, but when you set them up, um, you know, the, you actually pumped with your feet. But since Indian musicians traditionally sit on the floor, you know, there's still some um, debate about this, but there was a great harmonium player in Calcutta um, named Jan Prabhosh Ghosh who developed a hand pump version of the harmonium, which is what I play. Um, by pumping with the hand, you could actually sit on the floor with, with the other players. I got interested in this probably in around 1997 or so uh, through a couple different avenues at the same time. One was that uh, Henry Threadgill, who was a very important mentor to me, had put a band together called Make a Move, in which Tony Cedrus uh, played accordion and harmonium. 
And at the same time, I was starting to practice yoga and meditation, and the harmonium was used to accompany chanting in that situation. So I, uh, and I had been looking for another keyboard and wasn't, wanted to expand sort of my palette as a keyboard player, but didn't necessarily want to play electronic keyboards. So the harmonium sort of seemed like the logical thing to take up at the time, and I was very interested in Indian music, so a couple of years after that, I got a Fulbright scholarship to study the harmonium in India. I was basically studying uh, North Indian music, Hindustani music, on the harmonium with a harmonium master in Calcutta. My intention at the time was never to be able to perform Indian classical music, but to immerse myself in the culture and learn as much as I could about the music and and whatever technical, uh, whatever technique I could pick up about the harmonium and bring that back and see how that would inform my own composing and playing. Is it true that in uh, Hindustani music, about which I know almost nothing, the harmonium is primarily a drone instrument, which is different from how you use it, right? Yeah, no. I think a lot of people confuse the harmonium with a shruti box, which is a little uh, pumping, a little hand pump um, uh, instrument that on which you just drone. But uh, traditionally, the harmonium is used as an accompaniment to vocalists, and the player, the harmonium player, will kind of shadow the melodic line of the vocalist. And support the vocalist that way. So, and in Kuali music, it's used more as a chordal instrument. If I don't know if you've heard um, Nusrat Fatah Ali Khan, but his players will play chords and play a little bit more sort of a kind of a what I would refer to as a rocking sort of punchy style. But I was basically, I, and I did study some of that while I was there. But I was mostly studying this other style, which 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 is very melodic. Um, in Hindustani music, harmony uh, is not a big feature. It's mostly melodic music, but it is not primarily a drone instrument.
you mentioned a few moments ago studying yoga and meditation. I wonder how uh, those pursuits uh, have informed uh, your music. Well, I mean, you know, I, I think there's a lot to be learned. I, I, I was certainly able to apply a lot of what I was learning in meditation and yoga, and I also studied martial arts for a few years, and a lot of what I was learning there also applied to improvised music, which is very much about being in the moment. And meditation uh, practice is very much about being in the moment and dropping a lot of the, you know, the attention that we put on the mind, which is endlessly spinning out thoughts and ideas and worries and all kinds of stuff and, and becoming more uh, aware of other sensory information. So I found it enormously helpful to be studying uh, practicing rather meditation at the same time that I was learning to improvise uh, because it really did help center me in sort of the center of the sound and uh, helped open me up to listening more deeply, being a little bit more detached in the way that I listened so that I could learn to place my sound in the whole sound rather than putting more attention on what I was playing. I was able to start to put more attention on what everybody else was playing and found then that what I offered when I did play seemed to complement and fit better with what other people were playing. So I found it very, very helpful. In addition to being a, a performer and composer, you're also an educator. And I wonder, what's the, the role of the academy in jazz nowadays? That seems to be where most jazz instruction is happening. And I wonder what you think about that. There are a lot of different approaches to um, how jazz can be taught. And uh, I'm very fortunate to be at an institution, the University of California at Berkeley, where a more open kind of approach is encouraged or accepted. We've been taking an approach that that the basics can be very helpful and it's important to understand the tradition and it's also important to develop your own voice as a musician. And so I've been able to basically teach, you know, what I do in the sense of encouraging my students to find their own way of playing their instruments and creating uh, music, uh, whether it's composing or structuring improvisation in a way that, that really helps them to, to express their own voice. Uh, Satoko Fuji was a, a guest on this show a little while back, and uh, a recent recording that you and she uh, appear on together called Under the Water uh, has been in my CD player quite a bit. And I, I was hoping you could maybe talk a little bit about that, that session and, and how it came about. Well, let's see. I uh, I have a grad student here in Berkeley um, who's from Tokyo and uh, knew Satoko, and uh, this grad student had invited me to spend some time in in Japan over a Christmas break a couple of years ago, and was able to contact Satoko and um, suggest the idea that we do a concert together. And Satoko was really into that, so um, we did our first duo concert in Tokyo, I guess, um, in January of 2006 or seven. I guess it was 2007, and enjoyed it so much that I invited her to do a similar concert with me in Berkeley at the Maybeck Studio, which you probably know of because it was where a lot of famous jazz piano recordings were made 
earlier, and they have two great pianos. So uh, that's really how it started. We just it was just well, let's try this and see how it is. And we enjoyed playing together so much that we did it again. And when we got together to play the concert in Maybeck, I guess that was in September of 2007. Satoko suggested that we record it and. We decided, based on that, to release it. How much, uh, if any, kind of pre-planning was there about what the what the program would be and and what you would play? The only planning that we did um, was that we would each play so- some solo music, and then we would play a duo set together. So the the, the CD doesn't actually reflect the concert in the sense that um, Satoko played solo for about half an hour, and then I played solo for about half an hour, and then we did almost an hour duo set, and we chose three duo pieces, and uh, each of us chose a solo piece to put on the record. Um, But other than planning the format, which is to be these two solos and the duo, we didn't talk about the pieces at all. We just played. Not just in this uh, CD that we're talking about, but in general, does, does music continue to surprise you? Absolutely. I mean, you know, I don't know if... Are you referring to this music in particular? No, just... Or uh, in general? In general. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that's one of the things that makes it so wonderful and so compelling um, still to me is that you never know what's going to happen. The most unusual things can happen, whether you're playing, you know, composed music and improvising on that or or playing more free improvisation but but I'm I'm still constantly surprised and delighted and uh, a good example of that is this trio that I play in with Mark Dresser and Matt Wilson called Trio M uh every time we play it's it's more and more free and we never know what's going to happen even though in that context we are playing pre-composed music uh but we have no set arrangements and never know how something is going to start or end or how it's going to evolve in the middle. And and that's, I think, especially at this point in my life, that's like the most fun thing about playing music now. My guest is Myra Melford, and uh, it's been a, a, just an absolute pleasure talking to you. I thank you so much uh, for taking the time to come on the show. Oh, it's my pleasure, too. Thank you, Jason.
That's pianist Myra Melford. You've been listening to The Jazz Session, the weekly jazz interview show. I'm Jason Crane. The Jazz Session is presented by AllAboutJazz.com, the web's leading source for jazz news, reviews, MP3 downloads, and more. Every episode of The Jazz Session is also available for free at TheJazzSession.com and in iTunes. The Jazz Session has an email mailing list, which is a great way to win free music. You can sign up at TheJazzSession.com. If you're on Facebook, there's a group for The Jazz Session there, and I use that to give away music, too. The theme music for this show is by the Respect Sextet online at respectsextet.com. Thanks also to Dave Rabel, who designed the Jazz Sessions logo. The Jazz Session is distributed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivative Works 3.0 United States license. More information about that is at the website. Thanks very much for listening. Please support live jazz whenever and wherever you can. And come back next time for another conversation about jazz on the Jazz Session. Thank you for listening. Bye.